Okay, good morning everybody. I know that it's always an exciting time coming back from holidays and seeing people that you haven't seen for the last six weeks. But we might make a start because I know that everybody's made a big effort this morning to get here on time. Thank you everybody and welcome to our professional learning today from inspiration to impact. I'm Kate um, and I work with the learning and wellbeing policy and design team and um, one part of that team has put together today's event. This is the second time we've all been together where I've been standing in front of you so thank you for coming back for those people who've journeyed with us for the last 12 months. Um, I did promise that we would continue this and it wasn't a one-off and that we would get you out of your schools altogether at the beginning of the year again so I'm really pleased that our team's been able to do that and that you're all here. So, today we're going to have Tina do our Welcome to Country, but she's just running a little bit late. Um, so I will start by acknowledging that today we're meeting on the, the hot, dry, dusty, smoky, but beautiful Ngunnawal country and um, pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and know that we can learn so much from our Indigenous people who have cared for this land in different ways than the ways we have been over the last 60,000 years. So we look forward to Tina coming and sharing her knowledge with us a little bit later today. Um, but I would like to um, start today um, by introducing the Minister for Education, Yvette Berry, who I know is a true believer in the capacity of quality early childhood education and its ability to transform the lives of children and their families. Minister Berry. Don't pick a mic. I'm not sure which one was mine. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, thanks very much for that warm welcome. And uh, I too would like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land, the Ngunnawal people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Uh, and I also would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are here with us today. Uh, I see some familiar faces in the room. Uh, so it's lovely to see people who are still working in the sector and have been uh, experts in this uh, field for many, many years. Um, and so I also would like to pay my respects to you, the early childhood educators, uh, who give our children the best start uh, in their preschool education, the start that they really need to be on a really great learning journey so that every child gets to broaden their horizons and have a great start to a bright future. It's an exciting time, this professional learning event, to welcome to another school year. And I know that for many of you, it will have been a challenging start um, to 2020, given the fires and the uh, heat, uh, and now another, um, another spanner thrown in the works with the coronavirus as well. Um, I hope that you have had some time to rest with your family and friends, uh, and that you get the chance to enjoy the start of your year with young people that you'll be educating this year. Of course, early childhood is the place where we can make the most impact to the ACT community. And I wanna thank you at the outset as well for the important role that you play. In a time when our city has been facing some pretty unprecedented events, 
a supportive environment for children and their families when they start their school journey is going to be so important. And I wanted to make sure that you understood the impact that you have. Of course, children benefit more when they are receiving a great education and the wellbeing outcomes that come from that. And I know you all know, and now the research and the evidence backs that up, that quality early learning gives children a head start in life. Their wellbeing is improved and it contributes to a happy and safe childhood. This, the commitment is reflected in the ACT government's future of education strategy and soon to be released early childhood strategy, which will be the guiding documents that set out our education direction over the next decade. This will include uh, the, the most important things that we're proud of in the early childhood sector in the ACT, which includes innovative practice, qualified staff, purpose-built preschools, high participation rates, and investment in those first two years of preschool education. Of course, children can start early childhood education, preschool and school with very different backgrounds and life circumstances. The effect of this discrepancy is felt by children and families in our community. And that's why the belief that I share with you about the right of every child to have access to quality, play-based early childhood education is underpinned by a commitment to equity. Equity is key to enabling all children to reach their potential and to realising a just society. I'm very passionate about providing the support and intervention that families need, including those who have experienced trauma and family violence. Beginning this year, up to 300 children who most need support will have access to 15 hours of free preschool education each week as a wraparound service that will begin to close this equity gap. This is part of the first phase of the ACT government's $10 million plan to roll out universal preschool to three-year-olds. It is a partnered approach that links ACT public schools and education to care services. And many of you will be involved in 2020, perhaps as a community of practice partner, as an educator in a Koori preschool program, uh, which is expanding to 15 hours per week to provide up to 100 places to three-year-olds, or in the out-of-school care uh, preschool pilot, others will also join initiatives as they roll out. As a parent of two children who uh, attended early childhood education, I know that every parent wants the very best for their children, both during childhood and into their future lives. And that's why the ACT government is expanding the Prep for Pre program to support effective transition into preschool and to provide support for parents to uh, be effective first teachers. Today's event is just one example of how we are investing in ongoing professional development that empowers you every day to make the great, to make every day a great day for the children in your preschool. As the single most important factor outside of home, influencing the educational outcome of students, you are the agent that transforms inspiration into impact. You know better than me that every second counts. A child's brain makes a million new connections every second. The interactions that you have every day with children are critical for their learning and development and wellbeing and foundational to their success now and into the future. I want to acknowledge Catherine, who's here today, who is leading this event 
Last year, of course, Catherine inspired us all, and this year we will be taking off again. There's no limit to what can be achieved when all of us work together to build each other's expertise and that of our community. Together we will continue to make Canberra the best place for our children to learn and broaden all of their horizons. Thank you again for having, um, having me along today and I wish you all the best and success for a happy and safe and healthy 2020. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. I'd like to present this small gift to you to acknowledge your commitment to prioritising early childhood education and as a reminder of our continued work together. <laughs> so, a few housekeeping things. There's a lot of people here today, so we need to be aware of a couple of things. Please switch off your phones and the tinking, tinking, tinking of emails and notifications and things like that. There are going to be plenty of breaks at those times. Please feel free to have a look at anything you've missed in the last um, proceedings, hour and a half or hour that you haven't been able to see it. Today's session's being recorded again as a podcast. You'll be sent the link afterwards um, so that you can have another listen or you can share with your colleagues. And, and I know that I had people who couldn't make it last time listen to it on long journeys as they were driving to Melbourne and, and ring me up afterwards and say, oh, that was really good. So please have a chance to listen to the podcast as well. Um, there's a reading pack, so please collect one at the front if you haven't already done so. Sign in for TQI um, so you can get your three hours that this event will give you. If there's an emergency, there will be a siren um, that will sound and you will be directed to an evacuation point, so please just follow instructions. Um, our big thanks to the staff at Kirinari and Wiradjuri for opening their doors today, and I'm sure that you'll have an opportunity to and really embrace that opportunity to go and visit those sites and learn together from those educators. Take time to connect with all of our um, exhibitors that are around the place today, and, and I'd like to thank them for being involved. And um, please keep to time. So we'll have the times up. Are they up behind? No, oh, they, they were. Yeah. Um, so please keep to time. So we'll probably ring <coughs> bell and call you all in. <laughs> Do you have your rock? Yeah, it's a bit different. Last time we had little um, peach pots, and I wonder how many people have still got their peach pots, especially in their big clean up and move from last year. Um, today we've got felted rocks, which are just beautiful, and again, like admiration for the educators um, from Ainsley and North Ainsley um, schools, uh, preschools who did this for us, the children did these, so, and especially to Simone Hobday, um, who coordinated making more than 300 of these books. <laughs> and I know people do know me, Anne's over there, and she knows that I struggle just doing lunch at preschools. So doing this is pretty amazing, really admiration. I was getting ready this morning, like, oh my god, how could you have done that? Okay, um, so those gifts today are to encourage you to be fully present, to be inspired, and to connect with colleagues and be open to the possibilities. So if you can just take a second just to think about that, how we look at your rock, think how felting um, is an example of connection, an example of possibility, and how you're not quite sure what's going to happen in that process of felting of what you're going to get. So, Catherine.
Catherine. Thank you once again. Catherine said, you're not going to talk about me much, are you? So, no, I won't. I'm sure that um, those people know Catherine and know that she has extensive experience in early childhood. Um, she has been a kindergarten, so she's Victorian, so preschool teacher, um, and has then gone on to lead a range of services and projects for children and their families, and has been a consultant in this area for 11 years now. How about that? So, long-time um, member of Early Childhood Australia and the co-chair of the Reconciliation Advisory Group and a regular contributor to publications. Um, a strong advocate for children's rights, professional ethics. Catherine is extremely well-placed to challenge us today. I know she's going to do that. I know you're going to enjoy it. So please join with me in welcoming Catherine. Thank you very much, everybody. We've got a little slight technical change here, so just bear with us as we get that sorted. Has everyone got a chair? Yes, very good. Hello everybody, welcome. Um, it's fantastic to be here once again. Um, and, and before we keep going, it, it would be just important, I think, just to acknowledge that we're in really interesting times. I feel like we're at a really a bit surreal start to the year. I don't know whether you feel this, but I think there's a real strangeness to the way in which we're commencing the year with children and their families. And I, I want to acknowledge uh, our fellow colleagues who are in very significant bushfire affected areas. Um, some of you, of course, may um, have people you know, friends and family, as well as yourselves, in, in, uh, um, who are affected directly. Um, I do know of a couple of early childhood services. We haven't, I don't think we've lost any early childhood services in bushfire, but I do know that there are services out there who are trying now to scramble around and clean up um, around their early childhood services have been significantly smoke affected. Um, places like Buchan and uh, Bruthen in Gippsland. Um, the Bega Valley has some significant damage for um, smoke affected, etc. So we just pause for a little moment and think about them. I think one of the things that, that's a legacy of bushfire um, is that it is in fact not in the six weeks around the bushfire that we will need to have courage and we'll need to be able to hold on to the families and children that we work with, but it'll be in 10 years from now. So the, the impact of that will be significant and I, and I have some experience of this um, because of some of the colleagues that I've worked with in the King Lake area. Um, and they still talk about the impact of that and they lost an early childhood service at that time and they talk about what it's like for them 10 years, 12 years now um, since that, that occurred and I think we will see significant contribution by early childhood professionals like yourselves in restoring the confidence families have about their children's futures. I think there's pro probably quite a lot of families who are feeling a little bit more anxious about what their children's futures are going to be like and you add the coronavirus into this and then a whole lot of families are saying, what world is this exactly for my gorgeous, you know, three-year-old, so four-year-old, what is this world? So I think we can really provide a, a place of sanctuary, a place of hope, and part, partly, I think, thank goodness we work with young children because they have such an optimistic view of the world, and I don't know if you've noticed this too, they are problem solvers. So they've already, they already know some stuff that we can do <laughs> to change the way we think about the world. So perhaps we need to encourage our communities to listen carefully to what our children are saying to us about the world in which we live. So hold on to that and can I also remind you to look after yourselves. 
please look after yourselves because you are a bunch of caring people. That's the reason why you're doing this job. So make sure you look after yourselves in this as you look after the children and families who will, um, you will meet and get to know in the next coming weeks. Um, it's fantastic to be back. And some of you are thinking, oh, Jesus had another conversation with Catherine. So, which is terrific. Um, and we are, can I say, building on the conversations we started last year. It seems like a little while ago now. And we've, in the in-between time in 2019, had some opportunities to reconnect and talk to different um, teams. And some of your leaders also have had conversations with them. We've had an opportunity to drill down into some of those big conceptual understandings of the practice around um, high-quality early childhood education and care. The opportunity to progress conversations um, is really fantastic. It's really good to be able to come back and go, okay, where did we get to last time and how can we build on that? So I really want to suggest to you that today is an opportunity to build on all of the ideas we've said before. We're going to um, skip over some of those things very lightly and say, remember that, remember that. We talked about those things. Let's keep going. But those of you who weren't part of some of those conversations, you'll have lots of time to chat when you're on your way home with your colleagues and going, can you tell us a bit more about that? If you want more information or you think you need clarification about things, please come and talk to me. We've got a little break in the middle where you're going to go and specially hang out with all the stall holders who've made their way here today. Um, but uh, come and talk to me, get clarification, no dumb questions, so we'll open up those um, conversations and um, I'm sure uh, Linda and the team will be happy to share more details with you, give you some more information about what we did last year. I'm particularly interested though, and this is a conversation I've had with the team um, at the directorate, Linda and her team, is to think about now we've got some big knowledge and understanding part of this conversation. We've explored some big conceptual ideas that we've pulled out of the EYLF. We want to now say, okay, what do we now do? How can we refine and make clear our practice strategies? And this is about impact. This is about making sure that we are doing the things that are evidence-based and the things that, things, sounds like not a very technical term, the practices that are evidence-based that we know deliver the goods for the children that we work with. And in some ways, we want to hold on to the nurturing environment that is early childhood education, but at the same time, we want to make sure that our efforts deliver to children the things that they need to navigate a complex 21st century, a complex 2020. So some of the things we'll talk about now, I think, have direct relevance to the state of play that we're in now, but also can equip children to be able to successfully navigate the rest of their educational life. So I wanna emphasize that, that those practices that we wanna talk about today are how we translate the big conceptual ideas that come out of the EYLF into refined and clear and specific practice expectations. Now, I don't have the power to come around and go, make sure you do that, Michelle, do that, you know, do that. Um, what, what I'm inviting you to do is to think about the way that we connect those big ideas into absolutely clear, intentional practice decisions that are shared by the team that you work with and communicated to the community that you work with in terms of the families and your colleagues more broadly at your school. We, the more we think about this in terms of our practice expectations and we clarify what we mean by those things and I start to identify the suite of practice strategies we want to apply, the stronger we will be in our impact and the clearer we will be in what we know about what early childhood education at its best looks like. So this is a, clari a clarification process. We will ask you at the end of this process to identify the practice strategies you want to particularly work on. Is my microphone fading a bit in and out? It is a bit? It's still all right? Yeah, okay. If you think it's weird and it's whatever, it's not working particularly, can you wave? Michelle's gonna wave, aren't you? Yes. 
and I'll switch microphones because there's another one. Okay. But before I do that, I just want to um, open up to a conversation of, um, that, that references reflection. And we, we know that reflection is a really important part of what we do. We've certainly talked about that extensively over the times that I've seen you and worked with you. Um, but I want to just have a little different spin on that reflecting conversation. Over the, over the holidays, when I was in Sunshine Coast having a lovely you know, time with 23 degree water, how lovely is that? In Victoria, we have 12 degree water, but uh, in 23 degrees in, um, in gorgeous Sunshine Coast, I read an article, like you do, around reflective practice, and it, it mentioned this notion of the availability heuristic. Now, some of you are going, uh, what does that mean? Now, some of you know the word heuristic because you would have thought about heuristic play, so the exploration play that children often engage in, and in fact, children under the age of three often engage in heuristic play. So this opportunity to explore um, in ways, and then they often do that by putting lots of things in their mouths. So this is this way of exploring um, the world. And the availability heuristic, and the, they need to be cautious about this, is an opportunity for us to pause and remind ourselves that at times, human beings, educators, early childhood educators, Sometimes just think about the stuff, explore the stuff they already know. So, here's my challenge to all of us, I'm putting myself in this too. We can find our place, find ourselves in this bubble called the availability heuristic. We are just exploring the things we already know. And we can sort of kid ourselves into thinking that we're exploring new stuff when we're not. We're just exploring the same thing. We're sort of going around like a goldfish and going, oh, look at that, you know? So I want to really put us on notice as a bunch of early childhood professionals who, who are entirely capable of exploring the world as we do not know it yet and say, really stretch ourselves into doing things that we've never done before. And indeed, to remind our colleagues around us to be aware and aware, beware of the availability heuristic. So just because someone said that's how it always was and that's how I've always done it doesn't mean to say that we don't have a crack at exploring new territory. So can I just put us all on notice and remind us that if we find ourselves in the echo chamber of our own ideas and thoughts, because that's where we've always done it, and we have to put ourselves on notice to say, but I already knew that, because I think part of when I was thinking about this presentation today, I thought the temptation is for us to say, we already do that. Let's not say that. <laughs> and if you think you've got parts of these practice expectations already down pat, then the big question is, what is the evidence to support that? And do you do it consistently? Because if it's not consistent practice, then I'm going to say to you, it's not happening. Because we, we know that the expectations for the National Quality Standard, for example, ask us to have practice that is embedded, which means it has to happen on a Wednesday and a Thursday, and it has to happen with this person and that person, and it has to happen with this group of children and that group of children, and consistently all of the time. Because I'm, I'm, if I talk to some of you, you'll say, it happens when I'm there, but if I'm not there, it doesn't happen. So we've got to make sure that the practices are consistent and robustly implemented so that we make sure that we maximise the time that we have with children. And the truth of the matter is, is that we have a little time with children that goes really quickly. I don't know whether you noticed, but 2019 went like really quick. And then they're big and they're leaving. And you think, hold on a second, when did that happen? And we've got to be able to say, how can we maximise the time that we have so that we can make the biggest so that's our thinking. So beware. When you think it's coming, just be on the lookout. And 
if you feel yourself saying something like, oh yeah, we do that, say, oh, that's the availability heuristic coming in, right? Sounds very fancy. Anyway, so availability heuristic, let's remind ourselves of that. Let's just a little stop over here before we keep going to say, remind ourselves of the expectations of the national quality framework. These are really important, big concepts that inform the work we do. I think the thing we're talking about today is best practices expected in the provision of education and care services. We are trying to identify best practice elements. I was having an interesting conversation with a group of educators a couple of weeks ago, talking about practices that we use on a regular basis, the suite of practices we use, and the truth of the matter is that some of the practices we use are outdated. So time to get rid of them, it's time to not use them anymore, and time to replace them with more effective practices. And in fact, you haven't got huge amounts of time, time to do 7,000 practices, let's use the ones that are most effective. And can we also say, 2020, start of a new decade, can we start to adopt practices that perhaps are contemporary, that we need to make sure are part of what we do on a regular basis? So the big challenge is to refine that best practice um, opportunity. You will remember that we've talked significantly about threshold concepts, play, for example, as a threshold concept. I'm going to take those as red. I'm going to say that you fully are aware of the threshold concepts that we've been talking about, assessment, understanding the ways in which these inform the work we do. They are big concepts which are underpinned in the um, Early Years Learning Framework, a document that you have on your tables, as luck would have it, if you seem to not remember, because you've had a little holiday, um, then there, there is the document in front of you. And these um, are big concepts that are transformative, they are troublesome at times. The notion of play is particularly troublesome at times, and we've talked about that before. They're irreversible. Once you, once you do it, you can't come back. Um, and they are most certainly a process of transition. So you move and you grow over time. So hopefully, as a result of last time's conversations, you have adopted some of the work that, some of the thinking that we did last time and started to explore that. That being said, can I, and I know there's 180 of you today, so this is a dangerous thing to do, but can I ask you just to have a brief conversation with the person next to you and say, you know, that threshold concept stuff we did last time, the play idea, assessment, do you remember that conversation? We, some of we, we talked a lot about children's agency, the capacity for children to be co-constructors in their learning, all those big ideas we talked about. What has stayed with you? What did you explore in 2019 that you are thinking of taking with you into 2020? What sort of things were being talked about at that time which you think are resonating still as you move into 2020? Have a quick conversation with the person next to you. Go. Collaborative learning, you know, co-construction of learning, um, but there are plenty more. 
You know, uh, there are things like the relationships we have with families, etc., which are big ideas. They are the, the big idea notion for me comes from Anne Stonehouse, who was part of the um, work, the group who put the early years learning framework together. And she says, said to me when she was developing that part of the team, is that it's littered with big ideas that, in fact, were ours in early childhood education before they made them into their way into the early years learning framework. So what we've done is pull them from effective practice over the last 50 years or so, and we've positioned them into the early years learning framework. Those big ideas are, if you like, commitments we make, fundamental beliefs. This is why they're threshold. Because once you believe in them, once you adopt them, and if you truly adopt the thresholdness of them, then there's no going back. You go through a threshold. So you can't compromise them. I was just saying before to, hello, lovely person in purple, what's your name? Amanda. Amanda. Um, Amanda and I were just having a chat about a children's agency, the notion that children are co-constructors. The minute you say to children, you have the capacity to make decisions in matters that affect you, you can't take it back. You can't go, well, yeah, now I'm going to run a program in 2020 where you don't make any decisions. I'm thinking you can't go back. And in fact, I think if you in fact have gone through a threshold process around the notion of something like agency and indeed play, relationships with families very much so, and for some of you it's nature, pedagogy is a threshold concept and we're starting to build those, then you can't then construct a program that doesn't have those elements in. You can't build an environment that doesn't have those threshold concepts, for example. You can't um, progress an experience for children that does not have an opportunity for children to be agentic. So what I'm, I'm arguing that, that it's a, re, a reimagining or, a, or another way of engaging with the EYLF rather than just reading it from cover to cover is to go reading it and finding out some more in details about what those big ideas are. Last year, you'll remember that some of you gathered together in um, opportunities to do a deeper dive into some of those um, threshold concepts. So we talked a little bit about intention. Well, you know, we had a morning conversation about intentional teaching, for example. And our invitation for you then was to go and do some more thinking about that, start to implement those ideas, and to progress them more uh, strongly in the in the settings that you were working in. For some of you, those things are have been relatively easy to implement because they're already things that you are deeply committed to. But for others of you, something like play, for example, can be really problematic to try and get other people on board. And this also is an invitation, because one of the reasons why you have readings is for us to come become better informed at the way we advocate for those threshold concepts. And I'm going to also argue the practices that go with those threshold concepts. Because the, the threshold concepts, if you like, the theoretical platform that underpins the work we do, but we need to translate those into action, into actual practice strategies that enable those things to be enacted in the lives of the children that we work with and the educational experiences that we offer. So it's, if you haven't been a part of some of those things, I'm just waving at Michelle, um, we might just um, re resend right? Um, Resend some of the material that we had from last time so that you can find it again. Because I know that you're very busy and you've got 4,000 emails, so they may have been lost in somewhere. So it's good to be able to resend that. And there was a podcast and there was readings to go with it. So there's a whole suite of that information so that you can go back and engage with it. I'm sure we can figure out a way for it to be re-something. Yes, that's right. Good. <laughs> um, so, um, if those have
have, have sort of faded a little bit for you, just you know, bring them back to the fore. And I, I was I was with a, a group of your colleagues yesterday um, in a in a preschool, and we were we were talking about the fact that at times you can get very distracted by the daily operations of the um, of the early childhood practice and school life. You know, I had a look at the time take. I was actually out of school a couple of um, days ago last week, and um, there was there's, there's a very big school, and someone has the job of the timetabler. That's their time timetabler is their job, isn't their badge? And while I was while I was there, they were filling in the the term timetable on the four whiteboards that were the the terms. And I just stood there and looked, and I thought, Oh my gosh, it's quite a lot of things happening. It's just very busy. So what we're trying to do here, and partly by gathering you together here, is to reinforce this community of practice so that you strengthen your resolve, if you like, to go back into your early childhood settings and not get distracted by the other busyness and you hold fast to the pedagogy because that is what we that is what we do and that is when we are at our best. And refining that and keeping thinking about it means that we then have each other's backs, we can advocate for particular types of practice as we move forward, and we also find out who's really practicing strong pedagogical responses. So one of the reasons why you are going to visit next door here is that we know that that is a, um, a, a learning environment that is exemplary. We want to be able to showcase some of the best practices so that people can be able to say, um, that's a really great inspiration for my work, so we can start to showcase. I note on the table that there's a bus tour coming up too, which is about going to see practice, because I know some of you are very interested to say, that's a really good idea, but show me. Like, tell me, can I have a look? And of course, now we're in the 21st century, and you know, Dr. Google is your friend, so some people are doing a really good job of posting pictures and um, ideas on Pinterest. Be careful, though, be careful, because Pinterest is a availability heuristic. So is Facebook. So do you know what I mean by that? Once you say you like something, then they will give you more and more and more and more and more of the same thing. Be careful. Because once you say you like a pair of shoes, you are going to definitely get shoe ads forever, right? So it will be, it, it, it same works in early childhood. You will have to make sure that you don't just um, access material that you already know because you already know it. So this is about stretching. This is one of the reasons why that tour is a really good idea to be able to go out and see a bit more of what is out there and also share practice. It has another little um, agenda attached to it too, which is to recognise fantastic practice. And here's what we don't want to be um, in early childhood education. We do not want to be um, a, a culture. We don't want to cultivate a culture where we are um, ever so slightly subtly um, telling people not to be brilliant. So we want to be able to say, be exceptional, be brilliant, and we will, we will recognise that amazing work. Uh, and it's a phenomenon sometimes that happens in early childhood education. Um, we've borrowed it from nursing. It's called horizontal violence. And sometimes when people are excellent, we <laughs> cut them down. I don't know whether you've noticed this, but it's an interesting thing. And what we want to do is the opposite here, is we want to say, we want to recognise exemplary practice and say to our colleagues that's a fantastic thing rather than saying don't be too clever. So it's a really important way to recognise amazing work. So threshold concepts. The other thing, hmm, battery. Right, hold on one second. <laughs> going to low tech. Oh. Right, there we go. Um, so, the other thing that I want to just reinforce before we 
keep going when we talk about those, uh, the, the, these practice expectations, is indeed the national quality standards space. And I've just mentioned it before in terms of where this conversation might um, relate directly to the national quality standards space, um, but I want to make that really explicit. Who, is, who thinks they're probably up for a rating and assessment visit this year? Woohoo! A bit, bit more excitement, come on. Yay! Right. <laughs> All right, so those of you, those of you who are heading into a rating and assessment phase, I think we do have our colleagues from who are part of rating and assessment. Do we have you here with us, rating and assessment team? No? Okay. We'll just, we do. Are they not putting their hand up? <laughs> All right, we'll just keep talking about them. Um, but, um, we, we know that they're in a rating and assessment process. Whether you are in fact about to have a rating and assessment process, because if this is not the destination, it's part of our quality assurance process, it's part of our continuous improvement. If you are indeed part of a rating assessment visit this year, you think you've had one this year, then all of this is about quality area one and ensuring that in quality area one in particular, but also references to quality area five in terms of our relationship with children, and quality area seven about the role of the educational leader. This is all about practices that help promote and support the journey of continuous improvement around practice. So these are not separate ideas here, they are all contributing to the continuous improvement space. After morning tea, we will go into a planning phase and I have a little templating thing which I think is helpful sometimes for capturing your ideas. Don't worry if you don't want to use it when you get back into your individual service, but I think it's a helpful way to capture some of the ideas and thinking. This is, that, that templating thing could be translated into something you already have or could be just inserted into your, into your quality improvement plan. So don't, don't rewrite it, I've said that to you before many times. And I wanted to also just identify here that um, what will most likely happen in exploration around these practice expectations is that you will need to think deeply about them, you'll need to apply reflective practice to them. So again, that's the availability heuristic. Which bits are we doing already well and which bits do we need to expand and deepen our understanding in? And indeed, we need to make sure that they are embedded across the board. So not just practice sometimes, it's the all the time that, that I'm particularly interested in. And in fact, goes particularly to the idea of, the, of theme one, which is about the practice that's embedded in service operations. The other thing about this is that this is an opportunity um, in your rating and assessment space, it's an opportunity to plan and to think strategically about how, the, how these ideas will be implemented. So we'll hold on to this. We won't spend a huge amount of more time on this at all, but I just wanted to make sure that we are doing three things at the same time. So we're engaging with the early years learning framework. We are thinking about the work we've done so far, but we're also thinking about continuous improvement. The idea behind this, and as I'm just trying to synthesise it here, is that what we have been doing up until now has been theorising and we've been doing a lot of thinking around what we mean by what we say, the big ideas in the new ILF. We've also been talking about our willingness to engage in deeper thinking, but the truth of the matter is we do need to get to a point where we are absolutely confident that it's being translated into practice. So knowing is not enough, we must apply, and willing is not enough, we must do. This is an amazing photo of an encounter that I um, was part of, and now several years ago, um, of a group of educators who were supporting this group of fairies, <laughs> they're not children anymore, they are fairies, um, to make wands. They had uh, got a box of um, fairy costumes out of the shed um, and they had done that because I think I've mentioned to you there was a catalogue 
of um, boxes of various equipment that the children could go through and the children were looking at it to see what things that they would need from the shed and they chose the fairy box, fairy costume box and the fairy box costume box came out and these children commenced the process of applying said costumes and butterfly fairy costumes with a halo. You can see there's a halo over there and then there's sort of interesting things over here. So um, they realised in this process that the, and in, in conversations with the early childhood educators, that the wands in the box were not functional. They were like, you know, a bit floppy, you know, and you can't have a floppy wand, you know, it's not right. So the educators at that point absolutely moved into a really strong, we'll talk about this as we go, hello lovely people who've just arrived, there's, a cha there's chairs down the front as luck would have them. Right, I know. Do you love that? And there's two over here, and there's two here. So, and there's four on that table. <laughs> They're going, thanks so much for letting us, you know, say hello to everybody. <laughs> um, one of the things that we'll talk about a bit more is the notion of sustained shared thinking, which I would like to really emphasise here. And what I noticed at this encounter was that the educators became directly moved into a sustained shared thinking conversation with these children. Instead of saying, oh yes, you're right, the ones don't work, they um, paused that, uh, that thought, if you like, and they commenced a problem-solving encounter with the children to say, well, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with the ones? And they went, well, you know, they just don't stand up, you know? And the educators then commenced a really quite complex conversation with the children about what was wrong with the ones, why the ones wouldn't work if they were bent, and what they should do about it, and how they could create new ones, and this whole conversation lasted for about 30 minutes before the children then realised that they could go and retrieve sticks from sticks. I know everybody sticks. Sticks from the from the outside space. And they went outside and they retrieved sticks and they came back and there was a very long, complicated conversation about what they needed to do when they went to this space here, which was the sort of pasting construction space. Um, and to, to create wands that were permanently vertical, like that, that were strong, because, and, and what their thinking and theorising was about why they needed a wand that was strong and straight, because, and the wand that was like this was just not going to be as effective. So they've got plans and ideas and theorising, and this fantastic um, early childhood educator in this context also um, drew one of the family, family and uh, one of the parents in, mum, into the conversation because she was hovering around because her child was not settling well into the program and she was sort of doing a bit of hovering thing and getting really anxious and making her child feel anxious and the early childhood educator in this the one standing up, she said, would you like to come and be in charge of the scissors, the big scissors? And she said, yes, indeed, I would like. So she came over and she just this really subtle exercise of bringing her over to be in charge of the big scissors with this group of fairies and her child is just over here and it just changed the dynamic completely. But the use of intentional teaching, but of the use of sustained shared thinking was the basis upon which this encounter was strengthened and changed into a rich learning opportunity. It could have been a child-constructed opportunity and just that, but the practice of the educators in that context transformed it even further into something that was a very rich and powerful learning opportunity, had science, technology, engineering and maths all part of it because there's a lot of measurement going on and this encounter lasted for an extended period of time. 
the learning environment itself that was set up so that had these resources and available to children, sticky tape, etc., were already there, meant that there was an opportunity for those um, that those encounters to be strengthened. The the thing about these practices is that on the outside looking in, at times what people see is that this looks like play and it looks like luck and it looks a little bit vague and you know, I think what we've got to be doing more and more in early childhood education is to say it may look like a fluid play episode, it may look like a fluid encounter here, but what in fact is happening is, is absolutely upheld by strong practices that are deliberately applied. And this is where we have the science that is applied to our pedagogy. It is indeed an art. I would agree with you. There are moments in our work where the art of pedagogy needs to be exercised, but there are times when the science of our pedagogy needs to be applied. We need to know exactly what strategy we are applying at that time so that we can be more and more precise about the outcomes that we want, the impact we want on children's learning. Partly because we know more and more about the art of teaching, the science of teaching, and partly because we want to maximise the time that children have with us so that we can see the trajectory of their learning increasing over time. So there is, there's really, I think, a thinking space that we need to create here that needs to be translated into actual practice. And as I said, I want to be really clear with you about the practices that I'm going to share with you today are indeed what I would be, I'm seeing in the exemplary early childhood practitioners um, out there in the early childhood community in Australia. I think it's when we are at our best, this is what we are doing. So this is about us being really clear about that and being able to articulate it. Before we just talk about that, I just want to one more stopover. I want to set this into the context of curriculum. And I know that many of you, because you're working in the context of a school, curriculum conversations are being had as we speak. You probably had them yesterday. Some of you were talking about literacy. You know, some of you were doing a whole range of curriculum conversations. I want to be really clear about the way in which these practice expectations fit into the process of curriculum design and the curriculum implementation. This is not outside or different from what your colleagues are doing in primary and secondary education. It is just a process of figuring out where we fit in this in this um, suit. Um, this comes from some work that um, Dr. Susie Edwards has done um, around curriculum design, and she's at the Australian Catholic University. Um, really fantastic um, thinker in terms of implementing big theoretical ideas into practice. And for those of you who've been around for a little while, this. Some of these should be familiar to you in terms of your conceptual understanding. And for those of you who are relatively recent graduates, have we got any recent graduates here? Like this is your first year of teaching? Anybody? Hello! Can you put your hand up one a bit more? Like hello and hello over there. Anybody else? Just two of you? Everyone's shy. Can I just say on behalf of these lovely people, welcome to early childhood education. Welcome to early childhood. Give them a clap. that well enough, you know, welcoming people to the profession. What's your name? Emily. Emily. Welcome, Emily. Kim. Welcome, Kim. Um, can I just say, to be all on your best behaviour now, because you've got to show how to Kim and Emily watching you all, so just make sure you're, you know, on your best behaviour and you're thinking and you're, you know, what's this stuff. <laughs> so, um, it's fantastic that we've got new graduates here, so welcome. Um, this, so if you're a new graduate, you may have done some of this work too in your book learning before you got to this point. But, 
curriculum, essentially, four elements of curriculum, you know this already, um, the, the, the goals that we set for children. So some of these are already articulated um, in your thinking because you've carried them with you over the course of the last little while. I think some of you are going to have slightly different goals this year than you've had before because there may be goals that you have about in, um, restoring children's sense of well-being and belonging and to help children feel a little bit more um, resilience about the world in which they live. So it'll be very interesting to see what sort of goals you set um, and how you start thinking about that. Of course, in the early years um, learning framework and in the commitments to the National Quality Standard, particularly the exceeding themes, those goals need to be co-constructed. They need to be set with families and children and you. So it's a little weaving together of the goal setting exercise. Many of you I know are in the business right as we speak. In the next couple of days, you're going to be in the business of collecting that information from families about what they would like for their children's learning. The early years learning framework is pretty clear about that. And you're also in the settings where you're part of schools, where there is a trajectory of learning that goes on. So goal setting is critical. Then it comes to the conversation we're going to have today, which is about method. This is about application. This is pedagogy. This is the stuff, the art of teaching. This is the methods we use to achieve the goals. And the more and more I think we are clear about, if we've set particular goals, then there needs to be particular methods applied. And this is where I go back to sustained shared thinking as a practice strategy, as a method. If we are going to teach something about the environment, for example, and that may be on your agenda, um, to talk a little bit about the environment that we are currently experiencing and some of the issues that have created in the last little while, um, you may want to engage something called sustained shared thinking to help children understand and theorise about what they know about the world in which they live. I think there is some children who are currently theorising. In fact, I had a conversation yesterday with, the, with an early childhood educator who has a four-year-old, and she told her mum a couple of days ago that the sky looked angry. Now, that's a very insightful comment because, indeed, I would agree, the sky does look angry. And I think there's a lot of children who you will work with who do know a lot about what's happening in terms of the bushfires and they will want to explore what those things mean. It would be deeply problematic if we were to turn our attention away from that and not give children the sustained shared thinking opportunities with you to figure out what those things mean and to start understanding their place in that the methods then are complemented by materials and resources, and as luck would have it, you've got a whole bunch of exhibitors out there who are showing you materials and resources. And I have to say, this is a skill area of ours. You are great at collecting materials and resources, and some of you get them on the side of the road, you know, like it's amazing. Some of you have been to markets over the holidays and collected stuff. Um, and, you know, it's the materials and resources that I think are some, some extraordinary spaces and places are created for children's learning because of the materials that you use for teaching and learning. And can I put a big plug in here for the ways in which we understand assessment? Um, the assessment components un help us understand the distance travelled. And we talked about that as one of the threshold ideas, but I want to um, emphasise one element of assessment in the analysis of children's learning, the data you get to make sense of that as we progress. So this understanding of curriculum as a, as a holistic idea of planning effectively for children's learning is fundamental to that we make about how we progress key practices. I'm not going to give you a huge amount of time to talk about this, but I, I wanted to just highlight this particularly to you because I think it sets the scene for where the particular practice strategies, the practice expectations that we want to talk about are positioned. 
They are not there by themselves, they fit into a suite of strategies. This for some of you will help in your conversations with your principal and other leading people in your school. And for those of you who are educational leaders, it helps you to articulate where it is that it fits in into the whole program planning um, conversation. Uh, that's quality area 1.3.1, the only one I know. Um, but it's about, it's in that whole quality space about using the planning cycle effectively. That's basically curriculum decision making processes. So let's brazenly go into these um, practice expectations and I want to talk to you a little bit about um, what I mean by these before we take a bit of a deep dive in them. Now I could have chosen 24 different practice expectations, I could have chosen thousands of them and I think there's some already in that early years learning framework. It is interesting to note, if we reviewed the um, early years learning framework, I think we'd probably say thank you very much, They're a good, that's a good start, that collection there, but we probably might want to sort of change and add a few to that because I think learning and understanding about early childhood education has moved, you know, we've shifted and changed, we've taken new things on board. And um, so I could have chosen lots more, but in collaboration and conversations with Linda and Gina and Michelle and their conversations with you, we wanted to be really clear with you that moving into 2020, taking the threshold ideas that we've talked about, the ideas of the education, uh, the early years learning framework, all of the things that you've been really strong in up to date, um, is an opportunity for us to take all of that and say, okay, now we need to be really clear about the sorts of things we expect to see. And I'm, I'm, I'm using the royal we here. This is the this is us collectively as a profession saying, I, you know, as it can't be Catherine Hyden's idea, it's got to be we now are sharing this with each other to say these are the types of things we want to see. This is particularly helpful for Emily and Kim because it just started. So we need to be really clear with them and say, Emily, when you come into this, this is the sort of thing we want to see. Because, you know, one of the interesting things about practice expectations is unless we are really clear with each other and we are really specific, then at times educators are going, what exactly do you want me to do? I know, I know we believe in play, I really do. In my heart of hearts, I believe in play. But what do I actually do? And you know, some of you might be going, yeah, no, everyone knows what to do. Actually, I'm not sure that everyone all the time does know what to actually do. So we're trying to be as specific as we possibly can in terms of what practice strategies we expect to see. Here's the challenge. Some of these, notwithstanding the availability heuristic, some of these will be in fine working order. But in order for you to tell me that they are in fine working order, one evidence. So, what is the proof that you have that these things are in fine working order? And if you feel that these, some of these could be refined, um, then this is an opportunity to do so in 2020. So there'll be opportunities for you to revisit and come back to connect with each other, etc. the bus tour, there'll be other opportunities, there's plans I'm sure, as well as your own, generating your own thinking around what these practices look like um, on a daily basis and how you can refine them. I am interested in a conversation, which I'm gonna give, give you a little moment to do this, about, about where the barriers might be in this, con in this conversation and where the enablers might be. You will need allies. You will need people who believe and will help you in this regard because if you want to rearrange your learning space so that it becomes stronger in terms of enabling and facilitating children's learning in inviting ways and co-constructed ways and playful ways, then maybe there will be some conversations and argy-bargy that might have to take place at your site. I don't know, but you know, you will know. And others of you think, well, the whole sustained shared thinking conversations really resonates with us already because we've got a school who's really committed to inquiry-based methodologies. 
So this is gonna really resonate with the whole school's approach too, in which case you wanna be going, yes, thank you very much. Our version of inquiry-based methodologies is sustained shared thinking and that's what we'll be doing here and etc. So trying to find the linkages and the enablers is really important, but identifying the barriers to implementation of some of these will also be important. For some of you, it will be, uh, the, some of the, the tricky parts will be getting a clearer sense of what we mean by these things, which is why you've got some readings to do and which is why we need more conversations. Because this is a taster for further deliberation that you will need to do back in your own places. So, let me go and let me have a little crack at just sharing a little bit of information about them. We're going to take a bit of a deeper dive after we have morning tea, but I'm going to give you a little moment so you can talk a bit more about them, and particularly in terms of how well or otherwise you think these are being implemented. And again, what I mean by implementation, I mean everybody, I mean all the time. I mean on arrival and departure, I mean the whole time that children are engaged in that, in that process. So in some ways what we're saying is we're stepping up practice. So we're making more rigorous and more, um, I guess, much more confident in its, in its application. So the first one is sustained shared thinking. And again, some of you have been really aware of sustained shared thinking. It comes out of the work of the EPI study in the UK. And for me, it is, um, it is putting a name to something that I think, when I've seen early childhood educators at their very, very, very best, this is what you do. You engage in daily dialogue, what am I talking daily? 4,000 times a day, dialogue with children. They're episodes with, between you and children, and in fact, they can have it between children and children, but that's a greater exploration, between children and educators to explore ideas and concepts in intellectual ways. So I wanna hear intellectual conversations going on on a daily basis. And for this, is, this means we're all on notice on our mathematical language. You've got to get a quarter into the sentence, ordinal number into the sentence. We've got to have big ideas and we've got to be Googling stuff if you don't know. So what, what, are, the, what are the things, and, and this also means we've got Narragona Wally here now, so you know it's about figuring out big concepts and understandings that children might be trying to grapple with in terms of the world in which they live and the minor politics of the world in which they live. This is absolutely going to be the case if you open up to a conversation with children about the state of the world in 2020 and all the stuff that's happened. You will need sustained shared thinking on steroids because you will need to help children figure out what indeed is going on in the world. Because I think there's a lot of children who will come, as I've said, with some ideas and stories about that. What do they think that is going on? You know, how do they make sense of the angry sky? So this is what our colleagues in Reggio Emilia do in exemplary ways. We see it in our amazing work that, so that takes place in a whole range of different contexts around the world. Some of our colleagues in New Zealand do a great job of this too. It is about the intellectualising of the dialogue between you and children. So it is trying to increase the quality of the dialogue. And because it's called sustained shared thinking, it is sustained, you hold on to children for a period of time, you hold on to the conversation, you are deliberately holding on to that space, and then you are also making sure that it is shared. So you have to think as well. You have to be part of the thinking process. So what I wanna hear, I wanna hear people going, oh, I'm not sure about that, what do you think? You know, and let's, let's go and research that. So we should we research that? Because I don't really know the answer to that thing. I don't know why the sky looks angry. You know, let's go and find out about that. Why does the moon look like that? Is it the moon that we saw this morning? So, was it, is that the sun? 
clearly I need to do some work on my sustained shed. Sustained shared thinking is the first one. Um, I'll just go, quickly go through them and then I'm going to give you a little moment to just talk a little bit about what you, where you think you're at in relation to them. What else I want to see? Um, I want to see. I'm going to be cautious about that. It's not about Catherine. I think what we are now expecting to see in exemplary practice across Australia is collaborative assessment, where children are participating in their own assessment of learning. They are doing assessment as learning. And while I'm here, families have got to be in it too. They've got to be part of the conversation where they can contribute to dialogue with you about the distance travelled for children. We've got to figure out ways, and I'm going to propose some ideas to you, of, of including children in assessment processes, including families in assessment processes. What are they? When do they take place? How can we plan for them? How many should we do? What do they look like? And how do I capture that? Because, in fact, if you, if you understand um, a democratic, there's another big um, threshold concept, democratising of education, whereby many, multiple people have a voice, then they must be part of those assessment processes. And indeed, it's connected to the exceeding theme in the National Quality Standards. So documentation processes that include children and families, perspectives, and are visible to everyone. So I don't care how you do it, no, our app-based something, piece of paper, poster, I don't care, but that has to be made visible to the people who are part of it because otherwise we are missing some very important way of making, of assessing children's learning so it is made visible to the people who are part of it. The third practice expectation as we move forward into 2020 is rich analysis of, of children's learning. So we are now upping the ante here and saying more robust application of analysis in relation to the data you collect. So lovely to collect data, great to have observations, but what do you do with it? So how, and people say this to me all over Australia, I've got 65,000 observations and 425,000 photos on a memory stick, right? <laughs> But I think what's the point of that unless you take all that information and you look at it and you find out what does this tell me? Now some of you have got to figure out ways, and this is the this is the big you know challenge here. How do I get the peeps together? So Michelle and Marin, you and I work together, we've got 400 photos, what are we gonna do with them? We've got to figure out a way where we're together in the same room at the same time so we can talk to each other. And some of you are going, Catherine, that's really impossible. We get time to make it possible because otherwise we are letting children down. We are collecting data for no purpose. And this means it undermines the, the whole process of curriculum design because we collect data for no point. We don't actually do anything with it. Now I know some of you've got good strategies here so we need to hear from you about what you're doing. And we need to be able to say, we have not only collected this data but we've analysed it so it tells us something so that we change the program as we move forward. So this is, this is empowering. It, for some of you, this is like, really, do we have to do more work on documentation? And I know some of you wanted to poke your eyes out with a stick when I talk about that. But I think when you really fully engage in, a, in an analysis process, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, it is liberating because you think, jeepers, I know some stuff. Like, look at me, like, we're really good. And, of course, if you want to take it further, you start to involve children in the analysis of their own learning and families in the analysis of their own learning. Because if they are with you in the beginning of this next little while, and then you invite them into a space where they can start to set goals. Why are they not invited to assess with you what where children have got, how far the distance has travelled? So it's important. That's another important big idea that 
feeds directly from a threshold concept. The next one, and this is a big plug for um, learning environments, and you're about to see some of you go on the tour, and you'll hear them from our colleagues um, who are in the exhibition space, um, that the engaging learning environments is critical. I have to be really blunt with you here and say that I have visited some preschools here in the ACT, and I think some of you have fallen foul of, the, of, a, of a concept of making your spaces more schooly. I'm just going to be really blunt with you about that, and I, I think I go, I go into those spaces and I think, come on, we could, these could be much better in terms of rich learning environments that are understood as rich early childhood environments. It is not to say, and I, and I, I know it sounds really a bit harsh, not to say that those learning environments are not effective for children at different points in their learning space, but I think some of you have, have shifted the, the spaces to reflect a different pedagogical paradigm and time to bring it back. So what does that look like and how can you enrich those spaces? I'm, I'm being deliberately provocative here to try and really push us out of the availability heuristic because some of us are in the availability heuristic because that's the furniture you've got. And you do with it with what you can. But time for us to push the boundaries on that and reclaim some of the things we know about learning environments and early childhood education. There are 65,000 examples out there and you've got a document in your pack about that. And some of you are very, very good at it. And time to help the, your colleagues to reclaim what we know is highly effective in learning environments. So you're about to see some of those. I would really urge you to continue that conversation. These are environmental, they're inviting environmental spaces, um, in, inviting spaces indoor and outdoor, big plug for outdoor, because some of our outdoor environments, I have to say, let us down big time. And it's interesting, I was having a conversation with Early Childhood Australia in preparation for the conference in Brisbane this year, and we are trying to have a think about what is the Australian pedagogy? What is Australian pedagogy? And I have to say, if we cannot embrace outdoor learning environments as a hallmark of Australian pedagogy, then I'm not sure what we're doing. Because we, we have at our best created extraordinary spaces that look a little bit like that out there that are engaging and rich learning environments that ought to be maximised for children's learning. So we want to be able to have a growing sense of agency in those spaces where children are managing their own, their own learning. These children are four. We're doing a lot of stuff, so we want to be increasingly upping the agency as the, in, in their participation in learning environments. The last one I want to talk about here is that um, we have a community uh, that there ought to be, and this is again what I see in the practice expectations across the country, an increasing opportunity for children to make con community contributions. This is not just going and being cute in a space and walking and having a lovely time and coming back that these are children who, because we believe in a big threshold idea of citizenship, that they ought to be making a direct contribution to the community in which they live. What is that contribution? Now, the community in which they live could be the school, because that's a community in which they live. So there's a way, can you go and contribute to the well-being of other children? And can there be a way for children, and built into the curriculum, into your curriculum decisions, where children are leaving the building, more than once, more than once. And I'm going to put a bit in there to say all the time, every week, because how can I learn to make a contribution if I only go there once? Can I go to somewhere where I make a contribution and can that contribution be planned for and can that contribution be designed by children and can that contribution honour their right as citizens? 
So, in fact, a, a response to the current crises that we find ourselves in could be that children become part of the change for the better that I hope will arise out of these conversations that we're having now. Can children make a significant difference in their communities and embrace their citizenship? I think people will expect them not to be a part of those conversations because they're busy doing other things. But when the dust settles a bit, smoke goes away, children can be part of changes in community life that are for the better. And I've told you stories, all sorts of stories about that. There are lots of stories about that. And I'll tell you another one um, as we go. But I do think there's an invitation here for us to ensure that this is not just a nice idea that you heard at one session and we had a lovely time talking about, but that it actually happens. Now, some of you it might take three months to get a risk assessment done, but speed it up, people, and get out there by term one, term two. Okay? So that's the sort of idea that I'm putting out there as practice expectations. Now, as I said, I'm trying to be a little bit controversial at times in here just to get us out of that availability heuristic to see where else we could go. I want now for you to have a bit of a conversation with your colleagues. Um, and I know some of you are here with your team, so a good opportunity to have a little chat with your teams. And have a bit of a 10-minute conversation before we have morning tea to say, okay, what do we think about these? Have a beginning conversation. We're going to take a deeper dive. Do you think they're in play? Do you think they're in enacted? To what extent are they enacted? Um, and have a bit of a barrier enabler conversation as well as, as um, talking about what they look like individually. Off you go. Richie, while you're out there. So thank you, Richie. 
Thanks, Karen. Uh, first of all, I'd like to pay my respects to none of my ancestors. It's their footprints that they left behind uh, for over 100,000 years that we follow each and every day of our lives. It's important we search for those footprints because those footprints are the safe passages through this land, whether it's the fires going now or whether it's the fires going to burn again in another 10, 15, 20, 100 years. Fire is an important part of our culture. We're lucky in the ACT that we do have a, a cultural unit down in, in the national park that do all the cultural burning. Because if they didn't do that cultural burning, I'm sure it would be a lot worse than it is. I'd also like to pay my respects to the healing of Mother Earth that the fire is giving and those affected by it as well. I'd also like to pay my respects to the Ngunnawal elders, past, present, and also like myself that are emerging. I'm honoured to do the welcome to country when Auntie Violet, my mum, doesn't do it and you, know, you have no choice. You just get the call you know, around about 7.30, quarter to eight, say, hey, go do this for me, for that. It's probably one of the reasons why you know, I got into the education sector about 15 years ago. It's to educate educators, but also share my culture in a positivity way. You know, so if you, you are at an exhibition, there is a lot of cultural identity and education out there. You just got to know where to look or ask. Now, asking questions is a big part of our culture. That's how we learn. You know, our kids coming through have different ways of learning. How do, how do we make them, I suppose, learn for the whole time we have them? We don't. We let them teach us on how they should be learning. And that's what our culture is. We let Mother Earth educate us. You know, we live in four seasons. Go around Australia, there's many different seasons. Six here in Nunnawal country. Ten in Broome, you know, Girl Radry country, I'm pretty sure there's like five, seven. You know, Northern Territory might get two or three or seven. It's different. The diversity of it is different. The language, the laws, it's different. And that's what we need to understand as educators. In finishing, I'd like to say in my mum's words, Yan Yerun Buru Nanadara. Hello, good morning from Nanawal country. Thank you. Is it working? Yes, it's working. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that amazing welcome to country. Uh, it is indeed um, an important part of when we gather together that we uh, welcome the voice of the traditional owners. Um, land we are on and uh, remember of course that teaching and learning practices have been taking place here since time began and we continue in a very strong and fine tradition um, and uh, those of you who are um, just thinking about sustained shared thinking it's interesting you can have sustained shared thinking um, on country and being out of your early childhood space and into country gives you a permission to think with children on country and there's a whole range of opportunities to do that um, I'm sure in your local communities. 
So, I'm just going to stand up here because I think it's better to be a little bit higher. Um, our visitor has indeed left their building, Elvis <laughs> has left the building, so apparently very skillfully undertaken. Uh, um, we have about an hour left um, before you um, set um, sail back to your um, particular settings and uh, commence the process, I'm sure, of, of um, constructing the learning environments and getting things organised. I know that that's a very busy and dense time, um, but I would urge you to, if you can, take a little moment to um, complete the evaluation forms before you go. Um, they are the pink and um, green forms on your table. Um, they are help uh, in planning and preparation for uh, future opportunities. There um, also is on the table large white um, A3 documents. Um, they are designed for one per team, if you like, so one, one per preschool. Um, if you in fact don't end up having enough, can you please holler and let us know um, because we have a few more, but if there's one per preschool. Um, we are heading in the direction now of being of giving you some time at the end of today, or towards the towards 11.32, take some mo a moment and think together about what your practice priorities would look like for 2020 to refine and craft your uh, responses. I am aware of a couple, I've just had a couple of conversations with some, some of you and you've said to me, um, some of these things are practiced sometimes by some of us and not so much by others of us. It is a really interesting personal, professional conversation to have with your colleagues when you get back into your own settings is to say, I, we think, and if you are a leader in a team, um, this is a conversation with your colleagues to say, some of you are really good at this, we just need to make sure that everyone's good at this. So how do we make sure that everyone's good? And so this might mean some of you are getting and doing a little bit more thinking with your colleagues, um, getting your colleagues to give you some feedback about how you set up environments, for example, or undertake sustained shared thinking. If you have someone in your team who you already know is really good at one of these, then time to get them to share the love. You know, what is it that they do that is really strong in this regard and how can we seek from them their skills and expertise in this area. Or indeed, if you know that people are particularly good at, say, setting up environments, for example, that you would say to them, can you lead that conversation? Can you lead that process? Can you take that? Can you help us set this space up that is reflective of some of the ideas that we've been talking about? So what I'm going to do, just in this now, this next little time here, let me just get the clicker. Um, what I want to do is just to talk a little bit more in detail about these particular practice elements and just give you a little moment to talk to each other a bit about the notions of, of um, these practices and why we would think about them in terms of being part of the suite of practice expectations. Sustained shared thinking, as I said before, is this idea of developing um, children's critical thinking processes. So we have a goal here in terms of metacognition. Some of you know very much about this metacognition process. It's that after thinking about thinking, and there are children are right at a time now in because they have the verbal skills at three to four. They've got the verbal skills to be able to match their thinking processes, and this is the thing we're trying to cultivate in sustained shared thinking. So it is trying to um, engage children's minds in a sustained thinking process. This is what lies at the heart of problem solving. Children will be able to um, engage in those processes and put words to the processes that they are using to be able to um, engage in the thinking and describing of the world in which they live. I'm going to argue that sustained shared thinking is a precursor, is a really important and fundamental part of literacy development. 
It, it, you know, when we talk about literacy development, I know your schools are really engaged in literacy development and thinking about the ways in which those um, children become strong communicators. One of the things we need to establish right from the get-go with children is this capacity to engage in sustained shared thinking. So talking and listening and thinking are fundamental to writing and reading and being able to communicate effectively with a large vocabulary. So this is how it's done. This is how we lock it in. And this means that for some of you, we'll have to reduce the amount of instructional um, responses that we give to children, which is, yes, put that in your locker. Nowhere to go about that, is there? You know, like, you know, you've got to open up the conversation to help children problem solve and theorise in the moment with each other. Um, Iram Sarange Blatchford, um, who has put together uh, quite a lot of documentation and um, in more recent times, um, Kathy Brody um, from the UK, quite a bit of work in the sustained shared thinking space. And these are some of the ideas that make sustained shared thinking happen. You can see some examples here. Um, Open-ended open questions, you know. Again, some of these are bleedingly obvious. You go, Catherine, we all do this, you know. But here's the thing that I want to invite you to think about outside the availability heuristic. How often do you do it? Who does it? And how rigorous is it? And are we doing it just at some points of the day? And are we doing it at morning tea? You know, I, I, and, and the challenge is, is to identify, is there a part of the program, is there a part of the curriculum design that has not enough sustained shared thinking in it? Because if there is a part of the program that has not enough sustained shared thinking, time to give it a big injection. And, and I, I, I could argue that some of the routine processes like arrival, departure, um, toileting, washing your hands, getting your coats on, putting your shoes on, has less sustained shared thinking than it perhaps ought. So here's a question to you as to where the state shared thinking is currently highlighted, where we're good at it, and if we need to strengthen it across parts of the curriculum, parts of the program that perhaps don't have enough of it. And this means that potentially outside is where you need to put the sustained shared thinking effort. And for those of you who feel confident in this regard, your intellectual conversations with children are really strong, how can you share the love and support other people to do it? Can you take a moment to just talk about sustained shared thinking and the extent to which it is consistently and obviously applied across the whole curriculum. Go. Say something like, I'm going to say, what do you, what do you think? 
right? I'm going to practice saying that. So instead of answering questions for children, I'm going to try and really, really hard in my practice to say, oh, I don't know, what do you think? You know, and just really get disciplined about it. But scripting some of this is just one of the reasons why you see these things up here. Scripting things sometimes helps. Sometimes it does, you don't need it, but sometimes it helps. And it sometimes helps to get consistency. Say, so if we really want to talk about um, mathematical concepts in the sand or the mud kitchen, right? We've got this beautiful new mud kitchen. We're going to talk about mathematical concepts in the mud kitchen. And we're going to theorise in the mud kitchen. We've got to figure out what other words we would like to use. And we, let's think about what they might look like. And let's think about the ways in which we implement that by articulating them and writing them down so everyone is really clear about what they are. So we sort of script it. I don't mean that you're robots. I don't mean that. But you know what I mean? We, we get a sense of like, we're all, we're all going to say that. You're going to say something about it. I'm going to say it. We've got to remember that. Right? And then you, then you keep going. You move on. You can include that as part of your planning processes. But it is, it's true to say that there's, there's teams of educators out there who, who are thinking, I don't quite know what to actually say. So in my intellectual conversation, what does that sound like? The other thing that I want to encourage those of you who are leading roles, if you hear someone having a sustained shared thinking conversation, for goodness sake, go over to them and say, oh, that was a sustained shared thinking conversation you just had. Did you notice that? Right, because that's about supporting people to continue practices, just like catching people being good, right? You know, you want to do that sort of thing, reinforce great practice. Because if you're waiting for the National Quality Standard uh, Rating and Assessment Process to take place and find and, and see all this, then you're going to be waiting too long. You need processes in place. And maybe you ask your leadership team at the school to come and say, we've been really working on our sustained shared thinking. Can you come and have a look at us and see whether we're in fact doing it, you know, on a daily basis? This is where peer observation becomes a really important tool for quality improvement. Uh, next one, collaborative assessment. So this is this notion here, which I'm going to again reinforce to you. This is about uh, inviting people to contribute to the processes of thinking around how we track children's goals and how we capture children's participation in, their, in the thinking processes so that we can see they can make their own learning visible. You're, some of you have already come up with ideas of getting books out and tracking children's learning, putting things in there, great. Um, portion, portion. You can do it on Seesaw or Compass or wherever the other places, but they are not in the hands of children. They are in, uh, in, the, in the cloud and it's incredibly difficult for children to be able to access their own documentation if it's not on a piece of paper. Unless you have 25 iPads. So it's tricky. Think about the digital space. I absolutely embrace the digital space, but for some of these things it does need to be bog standard piece of paper. Right? So some of this can be in terms of being able to record it and showcase it, but some of it needs to be actually articulated in terms of capturing children's learning. Three examples here. One where the goal for children's learning, this is a document that parents fill in. Now, I don't care how you do it, you can do it in bubbly, things like that, however you like, but here's, you know, um, this, parent said, this parent said here, develop scissor use, cutting and, and sticking. Good, excellent. Now, give you go. It is rare that what parents give you in terms of collaborative um, decisions about their children's learning will be outside of what's in the early years learning framework. I've read lots of these sorts of things and never does a parent say they want something that is right out there. They might say they want their children to learn about geography, but in fact we, we know that that is children connected to and contribute to their world. Right? That's an outcome. <laughs> so that's your job to figure out what the interpretation of that is. And if families want their children to be able to read by the time they are in first term, second term, then you interpret that as, children, as parents wanting their children to be involved in literacy, which is exactly what we want their children to be involved in. So 
parents involved in that, children involved in that. And recording using a document like this, and again, I don't really care how you do it, but it must be made available to children. And indeed, at the very, we are at us at our best in collaborative assessment is using practices whereby children get to look at that in a in six months' time. See what I mean? So they should be able to see that middle document in six months' time and be able to look back at their own learning and say. A baby, clearly, I'm so much more developed now. Um, and see, I didn't even have eyelashes on my picture then, I've now got eyelashes. So, you know, these sorts of things are a way for children to understand that they're their own thinking. Now, I some of you have already got documents like this, it's just it is it is making them stronger in their collaborative focus. The other thing that I'm incredibly um, interested in which I think goes straight to the exceeding theme three about the ways in which we engage meaningfully with families is what is the mechanism recorded, and it could, this could be on Compass or Seesaw or Story Park or whatever you're using, um, for families to give us feedback about their children's learning. What is that? And how often can we talk to them about that? Because remember the guiding principles of the National Quality Framework reinforce our relationship with families as pivotal to children's learning outcomes. So we've got to be able to think about what that looks like and what are the mechanisms that are involved in that process. Can you talk to each other about the way in which you understand collaborative assessment? To what extent is collaborative? Is the assessment processes you use collaborative? Are they open to participation by parents and children? And for some of you, are they open to other educators? Does everybody participate in that process? So off you go for that conversation.
because I was just talking to this table over here saying you collect information from families, it's all in the enrolment form, but how do we make that information deeply meaningful so families have a deep buy-in to their children's early childhood education? And if we can figure out a way, and here's the big practice challenge to you, figure it out. We, you, are, you are clever people and we need to figure out workarounds and we need to figure out systematic ways of doing it. So what is that way? And there's the big challenge for 2020. And truth be known, some of you will not crack this, particularly the parent component, this year. But can I put you on notice to say, can we figure it out this year for 2021? Is there a way you can meet with the families at the end of this year where you can get that goal setting information? Because wouldn't it be super duper excellent at this point in the year, 2021, to have completed that document, that, that first document here, for every single child you know, I know there's going to be some children that will just turn up, right? But for the bulk of the children that are about to arrive, you know what families are thinking about their child's year. You have got that information and data and you've analysed it, which I hope to be the next one that we're going to talk about. You've analysed it and said, what have we got here? We've got a cohort of families who are particularly interested in X and we're going to make sure that that is a part of the curriculum and we're going to feed that information back to families. Because the minute that you do that, the minute that they is the is the minute that they feel deeply connected to the learning that's taking place, and we have gone full circle in our practice relationship with families. This is this is about a deep. We have a deep relationship with families. These are little people. We are fundamentally committed to the relationship that we pursue with families around learning. And this process, this process will help their, help families sometimes for the first time to realise that their child is a learner and that they can be, as much as you, a contributor to their child's learning future. It gives me goosebumps about the possibilities around that. And some of you will actually manage to convince families for the first time that they are their child's first teacher by asking that question. And then I'm going to give you an exceeding rating because that's what it's about. That's what it looks like in practice. <laughs> I know that practice challenges are there, but this is time to be able to think, okay, we've got to be an advocate for that in our own local settings, as well as to think about what the workaround is. Righto, let's keep going. Speaking of which, analysis of learning needs a big injection of, um, of robust intellect. This is about, this is what you do that no one else can do, and I've talked to you about this before, but I want to reiterate how important it is that we are engaging in something called analysis of children's learning. The analysis of children's learning that I'm talking about here has this has has history back to John Dewey. You know, so some of you in the book have done recent book learning. Maybe you did think about John Dewey, but lots of you will know John Dewey's work. And Dewey talked a lot about the fact that observation is not enough. We have to understand the significance of what we are seeing. So simple data collection, even sophisticated data collection, is not enough unless we take that data and we have a look at it. Which is one of the reasons why we want to take the data that we get from families, look at it and see what it's telling us. And lots and lots of documentation, like I said before, is not helpful unless we engage in a rigorous process of analysis. And the analysis, of course, is um, the early years learning framework by learning outcomes, as much as it is a whole suite of other information that informs your thinking, theoretical, contemporary theoretical platforms, Gender, for example, is an important new theoretical way of thinking about the world. Um, we do have we have postmodern perspectives that help us understand the dimensions of power dynamics, etc., and justice and um, equity conversations. There's lots of ways of understanding that. Critical thinking here makes sense of the observations. 
And here I'm going to put a plug in too for having collaborative conversations that analyse the data that you have collected as a group of practitioners. It is about um, the processes of analysis, analysis that I've documented. I know you analyse children's learning on a regular basis by talking to each other, right? You do that all the time, chat, 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 you talk about it all the time. When we took our deep dive into an assessment, we had a little bit of a look at this, but this is also to reinforce that you are analysing data from multiple perspectives. The more you analyse the data, the more meaning you will make of it, and therefore your next curriculum decisions, your planning decisions will be more meaningful. Quite simply, um, saying the children enjoy the Play-Doh, let's have more Play-Doh, is not analysis of learning. So figuring out what is going on, and once you have collected the, when you do the beautiful cubby that you're gonna have, um, once you've understood what children are saying about that, collected information about that, then documenting that, going back in to have a look at it, what have you recorded, what does it look like, how do we understand it, can we think about it from different cultural perspectives, can we think about it from multiple theoretical perspectives, what is this telling us? That will help you then decide what you then do next. Because we have not, as I said, got 600 hours, not a long time, so we're gonna make all of these decisions as robust as possible. I'm, I'm suggesting here there are multiple ways of looking at this. There's a whole range of framework ways we can think about it. We can think about it from the eight ways perspective in our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives of pedagogy. We can think about it from a conceptual understanding, from a mathematical or literacy perspective. There's multiple ways. You will construct the ways you understand um, in terms of, um, of, of diving into the data you have. I'm not going to read this to you, but I'm going to send this to you. But this is an example of the ways in which an educator, I don't know whether this has got a laser pointer thing. No, it hasn't. It has. Oh, there it is. You can see. What I wanted to note here for you is that um, some, somehow we've got into the habit of saying every piece of data you collect you have to analyse. No, that is not true, right? Don't analyse everything you ever take, every, everything you record. Rather, you can see here, one episode here, another episode here, another episode here, three sets of observations, then offer an opportunity for analysis. So can I invite you to rethink the way you are analysing, not to analyse every individual piece of data, but to instead collect a set of data and then analyse. And then set a goal. Because I think some of us are speeding up and not diving deep. And so when I've done a bit of work with this team particularly who were working on this and in their first, what they were used to doing was collecting one piece of data and analysing it. Too quick, right? And then eventually what happened is when you analyse this plus this plus this, you feel like going, oh, now I get what's going on. Because what I thought before was just that they were interested in X. But in fact, actually it's not about that. It's about this. And if you slow the analysis process down, you make it more, you, you make it deeper, and you start to really apply critical thinking, the John Dewey application of critical thinking to your data, what you know and understand about children, then the goal setting and the next practice decisions you make after that will be more robust and indeed more effective, and the children will be more engaged. So you will actually have a better time as well. So can you turn your attention now to the state of analysis of learning? How are we going with this? Who's doing it? And do you think it's too quick and too surface and requires a little bit of a deep dive? Go. Okay, everybody, just power along here because I want to give you time to make a plan.
Next one. Community contribution. So this goes straight into the big threshold ideas of agency and children's right to be an active citizen. So Article 12, matters of um, involvement in matters of, um, that affect them. Uh, it is children's capacity to be able to make sense of the world. I think we're calling it is more and more, given the re recent you know, Australia-wide conversations. I think this is the way that we assist families to realise the potentiality of childhood. So it's a, it's a big message here. And in fact, I think this is what challenges um, the perception of the, in the Australian community of what children are capable of doing. Um, my, my good friend, um, Anne Kennedy, um, she's, um, she's, been, she's also involved in the EYLF. She says that there is a tendency in the Australian community not to really like children. You know, we're not, are we? We're, we're ambivalent. <laughs> They're okay sometimes, but we don't like them on an aeroplane. You know? <laughs> And um, I think, largely speaking, our community underestimates their capacity. And so it'd be very interesting in times of crisis, communities might not think that children are capable of actually changing trajectories for the, the lives of communities. And I think that time and time and time again, we prove that children can make a positive change and a significant impact on the communities in which they live. But only, really, at the hands of people with, with, in collaboration with people who understand their capabilities and understand their capacity to be able to make a difference. I've told you lots of stories about this. This is another story. They're all over, they're everywhere and some of you are already involved in this and some of you are not brave enough to quite yet do this and some of you are not, not brave enough to take children out regularly enough in order for them to participate actively and know a place well. These are the children at a centre in Elwood in Melbourne and they have um, they've been part of a work with the rangers in that area because they are located on the threshold between the road and the beach. That's where their, their service is located. And for a long time they never went out the building to the beach because the beach is just behind them. And it is a bay beach, so you know, it's not wavy. Um, it is a, and it's a secure beach, so there's some problems sometimes with rubbish and things, you know. So they've been really actively working on preserving and making sure that they are a participant members of cleaning up and looking after that beach. And they, they are now absolutely critical to the long-term plan for that has been developed by the City of Port Phillip um, in relation to the coastal, um, the coastal work, coastal preservation work that is taking place on that strip. And the children, as a result, with the educators, have been developing a coastal curriculum which they have now will use and be part of the expectations of what happens in that kindergarten for every single child who enters and through that in the two years that they're there, three-year-old and four-year-old programs. So coastal curriculum has come about because of children's active participation in that community. It's made its way into many, um, uh, many places. Um, the conversations around the location of the kindergarten itself has been controversial because they are located between the road and the beach. So it's been a controversial conversation. Children have been active in the conversations with the local government to change situations and to get different things happening. But you can see now they are actively part of what happens in that local community. You will, you know your communities well. Some of you are in sort of bog standard suburban world. So you're thinking, what can we do? Well, I have to say that we should take our inspiration from the ideas that have been understood for a very, very long time about, and, and indeed, an, a, an ancient indigenous
Indigenous way of knowing the world, that children are actively participating in the decisions that are made by whole communities. So there is stuff going down in your community that your children know about and that they could be a participant member of. To embed it and build it as part of the curriculum, not as something that you do on occasion, is the trick. The risk assessment is critical, right? But that is, I'd say that's a functional job as opposed to the inspirational, transformative work that takes place once you have cracked the place that you are going to on a regular basis. I don't much mind where it is, age care facility, the park, whatever it is, but you've got to go more than once. And I'm going to suggest to you, you've got to be thinking of going once a week. So in a 40 week, in a 40 week dose, you're going 40 times, potentially going 40 times to the same place. Once you have been to a place 40 times, do you feel confident and know it well? Yes, you do. Do you think you can track and understand that as a, as a learner in that space? Can you think about all the different things you can go do in that place if you've been to it 40 times? Can you find parts of it that you never knew existed if you go 40 times? Yes, you can. So the invitation here is to deepen and strengthen the community collaborations that take place to make sure that there is a contribution taking place by children. Can't just go, have to do something. Have a chat about where you're up to with that, go. are, for me, something that is a pivotal part of what we understand about early childhood education and care potentials. It is what is captivating in spaces and it's how we understand uh, learning to be maximised. I had this lovely conversation with some educators just at the beginning of the day about if you have literacy imperatives going on in your school setting, um, what we know is if, if we create language-rich environments where there are multiple times where children have to engage in the writing of their name, for example, then we are really, we are getting closer and closer to enabling children's powerful learning to take place. So, you can see here, just really clever ideas here, children sign-in sheet. I know lots of you do this already, but I think the idea at the top of the um, screen, this one up here, is a really interesting one. This is when children bring their snacks into the, um, uh, they bring their, they get them out of the bag and they have to put their name on them. It's got masking tape, right? And you stick in that masking tape on you write your name. Now, for me, that is about using the environment as a third teacher, right? The environment itself becomes the teacher. This is what we can do and maximise in the early learning environment. And this is what I mean by if the, if the environment is established to be too didactic, too orientated towards adult-orientated intentional teaching moments, then we miss the opportunity for the, to, to engage in the environment as a third teacher. The other thing that's important here, and this goes to children with additional needs and the diverse learning needs of the group, is that if we can design learning environments to meet multiple needs at the same time, then it makes your work easier, just quietly, and it will engage children's holistic learning. So there's a big threshold concept. We know children learn 16 things at the same time, so I need to be able to engage in learning environments that give me opportunities to learn multiple things at the one time. We need to maximise the agency and opportunity here. And this is where I'm going to put a big plug in for all of the, um, the eventually, at the end of the year, all of the paintbrushes have to be out. 
Every single one. All the scissors. All the scissors. Or every type of texture known to humankind with the lid on. And the sharpener, so I can sharpen my own pencils. All the sticky tape holders and the paint in their, in their original containers. I have a heart attack now. <laughs> but tell me, tell me that your children are not capable of doing that. Yes, they are entirely capable of doing that. And, I know, people are like, oh my goodness, <laughs> So, hold on one foot. send a ripple effect through all of, you, all of you. Why are we going, ooh, ooh, ooh? Because, you know, this idea is not new. It's not new. And the Early Years Learning Program gives us an invitation to use the environment as a strong third teacher, to say, hold on a second, you're four, journey five. Um, you, there's lots of the things that you can do, and I will intentionally teach you, that's your job, to how to use the sticky tape holders and the big, big containers of paint and all of the brushes to choose and design your own planning and own learning. Because indeed, this is what we eventually want children to be able to be really fantastic at by engaging children's thinking and planning so that children can engage in inquiry-based methodologies as they go into school. And if any of you are thinking to yourself, well, that Catherine does that in primary school, I don't care. This is important for who we understand children are in this time. And we are honouring who they are now not who they will become when they're in grade six, it is who they are now. And this is the maximising the opportunities of these learning environments. Yes. So indeed a ripple effect about trying to create environments that are deeply engaging, that energise your creative spirit. This is where your friend Dr Google is really helpful because there's plenty, plenty of things to think about that are inspiring and that's where that tour will be really helpful. So many, many ideas out there. So, sign-in sheet, etc, etc. I, I know you're all desperate to talk now. So, can I now, shh, hold one thought, hold that thought for one second. Right, here's your challenge now. What, what I'm going to ask you to do now is to think together using that little template thing as a, as a provocation for thinking. It won't be the only thing you ever do, but it's just a way of sorting out some of your thoughts. One person per team says, okay, what are we going to, what, what are we going to concentrate on? There's plenty of things to do here. These are now going to be discussed with you as we progress into 2020 as practice expectations. We expect to see these things because you are all skilled professionals and this is what you do. And this is what we understand are effective practices they are in line with the National Quality Standard. They are reflective of the expectations in the National Quality Standard. Time to refine them. Time to choose some practice priorities and the ways forward. You have some things here that are reflective of a quality improvement plan that you could insert into your quality improvement plan. You now have about 15 minutes or so to have a conversation with each other about what that looks like. Ready, go. <laughs> It'd be great to see one idea on your piece of paper. Go. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Um, I'm just some time. So, if some of you are
yourself as you're having this conversation, no one's going to know if we don't do this. It's true. But actually, this the, the work that we are doing here is the stuff of high-level quality improvement. It is about continuous improvement. You are, in fact, accountable to yourselves. This is a professional pursuit. This is about how we are accountable to ourselves as ongoing learners in our professional um, world. Some of you have been already started these things. I've had a lot of a conversation about um, learning environments and how you need more logs. You know, well, this is the time to do it. So there's opportunities here to be able to reinforce it. And if the language around practice expectations is helpful to you in your own individual settings, then please use that language as a way of supporting the conversations you are having locally. I wish you all the best as you continue these conversations and I hope to see fantastic stories emerging from practice. Um, please don't be shy. If you think you're doing something amazingly well, then please bring Linda and the team and share the love. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Catherine. Um, and I think you're right. I think we know ourselves if we're doing the wrong thing. And I was just reflecting with, with um, Michelle to say, oh, I was a really bad early childhood leader because there was lots of things there that I went, whoops, shouldn't have been doing that. So I uh, thank you for allowing me to reflect as well. And I'm really pleased that I'm no longer in a school um, making bad decisions. Um, Catherine, here's a, a gift to say thank you from all of us, and that's um, again from the beautiful people at um, North Ainsley and Ainsley School. So thank you very much. Join with me in saying thank you to Catherine. So just a couple of last little things. Can I also ask you to say thank you to the team who put this together, to, to Linda, Michelle, and Gina, led by Mandy. So a big thank you to that team. Um, I would also like you to, when you go back to your schools, to make sure that you have a chance to sit down together and reflect on the decisions that you made today. I'm sure that your conversations were not complete. I'm sure you got lots of great ideas just from the, the photographs that you saw up on the board, if the, the chatter was anything to, to indicate that. Um, be inspired from this presentation, also be inspired by your rock, because I think you can take that away and it be a constant reminder for you. And um, know that the learning that you give our kids is strengthening their positive learning environment and their well-being. 